This is the Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on November 29, 2019 with Om C. Parkin. Om C. Parkin studied psychology but dropped out of university studies after three years because it gave him no real insight into human nature. In parallel, he worked intensively on the spiritual traditions of Sufism and the Enneagram as a mirror of the cosmos, especially the human psyche. In 1990, at the age of 27, he suffered a serious car accident, crossed the threshold of death, and woke up again to life egolessly. Shortly thereafter, he met his spiritual teacher, Gangaji, who helped him process his transformation, which cut through the everyday world of experience. Gangaji sent Om to her own teacher, H.W.L. Punja, a direct disciple of Ramana Maharshi, who gave Om his spiritual name. Om has been teaching orally and in writing ever since, accompanying people in their search for truth and self-knowledge at spiritual events. In addition, he is the author of a variety of books, writings, and articles, including the recent English publications of The Digital Age, The Birth of the Lion, Non-Duality as a Way of Life, and Intelligence of Awakening, Navigating the Wisdom Path. Ohm founded the first major German-speaking mystery school of the present time in the 1990s. Since 2010, the school is located at Gut Zaunstorf, a splendidly restored historic manor house near the Hasiatic city of Wismar. This is also known as Ort der Stille, the Place of Stillness. As a modern monastery, it is also open as a retreat for people who are on the inner path. Om C. Parkin's spiritual teaching is also referred to as inner science and is based on the Eastern Advaita Vedanta tradition. This teaching also encompasses Western experiential paths, such as Christian mysticism and the work of the Fourth Way of George Gurdjieff, as well as modern psychological and psychotherapeutic methods. The goal is self-knowledge through inner work, which ultimately leads to the realization of the true human nature. Om is preparing for an American tour in October of 2020. Om C. Parkin, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Hello, thank you very much. Good evening. I mean, is it evening in California? No. It's morning, actually, but that's okay. morning. <laughs> the sun is just coming up. That, that's why I said okay. uh, guten tag earlier. Mm. Okay, well, you can say good evening to me then. Yeah. <laughs> guten, Abend. guten Abend. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you for joining us. And we will begin uh, with our, our usual uh, introductory question, which is to invite you to cast your mind back into the past, to childhood and youth, and invite you to um, think about any uh, experience that you had in youth that prefigured your role as a uh, as an author, as a spiritual teacher, as a spiritual practitioner, etc. Later in life. Mm, typical 
experiences? Well, mm, I could mention uh, a series of accidents, uh, beginning with uh, maybe 10 years. And um, <clears throat> the, the, the series continued, and as you might already know, if you have, you have read maybe in, in one of my books, there was a final, final accident uh, with the age of 27. So there was a whole series of accidents, and uh, there was uh, this culminated in this final accident. So when I'm asked who, who, is my, who was my first, well, my first and final teacher, I have to say, I would say it was death. So that's why I mentioned these accidents, you know, because, <clears throat> um, yeah, well, it's, it's amazing that, that, that uh, I'm still here <laughs> physically. <clears throat> so did the accidents and did uh, progressively give you more and more uh, sense of, of something about death or beyond death? I know the... the I, I don't know that I read about the earlier accidents. I'm just interested in how these shocks uh, accumulated or may have uh, been instrumental in an awakening experience. Well, all the first accidents didn't have a direct, um, you know, uh, were not a direct medium for, for realization or for the... Uh, expansion of consciousness or anything like this, but they were <clears throat> uh, a symptom of, I could say, the inner pressure of suffering that uh, was <clears throat> more and more. Mm, and the, this last accident was more like an explosion, you know, of, of, of everything. Uh, so this this is why I mention it. I can say that the the the, the tension, uh, the inner tension, became stronger and stronger through these accidents. And um, of course, this is not a very um, comfortable inner state. But finally, from my perspective now, I of course I can say that. Um, it contributed to the understanding of what what suffering really is and as you might have read in my last well it's not my last book but the one which was published in english intelligence of awakening one chapter is only about the understanding of what suffering really is from the wisdom perspective so <laughs> finally it sounds Paradox, but I can say that um, paradoxically, I I was. Mm, it's a kind of mercy that uh, suffering remained conscious and came to this point where it was possible that the transformation could happen. <laughs> so, um, in your childhood, you mentioned uh, that from the age of ten, you started having. Uh, these accidents. Um, 
I assume they, they were uh, physical world accidents that affected your body. Um, were you growing up in a context with any kind of religious or spiritual um, way to help you understand perhaps what was happening to you? No, not at all. I mean, just a you know, average middle class uh, Catholic uh, family uh, without any spiritual rigidity. Um, but I was uh, already as a young man, I was very interested in in spiritual things. You know, I was um, very rebellious against the mainstream society and was hanging out with people who were taking psychedelic drugs and, and reading Castaneda and this kind of thing, you know. <clears throat> yeah, I certainly am familiar with that. Uh, from, uh, <laughs> we, we are close and to the same age, so the, mm -hmm. the social for factors are very similar in our um, uh, live stream in terms of what was available and what the conversation was. Mm -hmm. There's a, a question I wanted to kind of delve into. You mentioned the chapter in um, The Intelligence of Awakening on Suffering, and it's one thing that's interesting for me in your biography is that there were accidents that happened, which at least on a surface level would appear to be factors from outside that would contribute to uh, a progressively deeper awakening experience. And in contrast to that, sometimes the spiritual path is configured as something that people do. In the chapter on suffering, you talk about more of this inner pressure, as you just described, arising, this, this uh, kind of deeper force from a different part of ourselves than the uh, conscious uh, you know, thinking mind that pushes us or pushes or demands a kind of attention for people who are truly on a spiritual path. So I'm wondering if you could speak more about that, the function of that pressure that you describe and where that pressure is coming from. <clears throat> well, mm, nobody is living in paradise. I mean, nobody is living in conscious paradise. We come from <clears throat> unconscious paradise, uh, you know, and which we call, which the wisdom teachings, as you know, call sleep. So, um, in this chapter, you, you, you find the, the way I describe suffering has to become, uh, has to reach consciousness. So, <clears throat> for me, the concept of conscious suffering is a very important concept of the inner path. Um, conscious suffering is uh, a moment of uh, the total mm, awareness of duality. Uh, we cannot overcome unconscious duality. You know, if we have terms like ignorance or you, you, you know the Indian term of tamasic uh, mm, sleep, um, if we are only uh, 
involved in the endless self-entertainment uh, <clears throat> during waking state, then uh, we cannot reach the moment of conscious suffering. The conscious suffering is not an invitation to remain in suffering. It's only uh, this moment of complete uh, awareness of, of duality, which is part of, which is the moment where duality begins to, to transform already. It's, it's also similar to the concept of, uh, what do you call it, capital, capitalization? No, wait a minute, capital. What, what's the English term for this? For um, capitulation. No, 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 no. Capitulation. Capitulation. Yes. Cap capitulation. Capitulation. Cap capitulation. Capitulation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> capitulation. Okay. So is it a? I mean, this is an interesting question because um, what duality are are we becoming present to in consciousness that would give rise to a sense of suffering? Well, according to the wisdom teachings, you know, duality is the only source of suffering. Suffering is not about negative states of mind, as uh, ordinary people might think. But the concept of suffering in the wisdom teaching is only about the state of duality. So duality is a state which is uh, <clears throat> imminent in the pseudo-real existence of the thinking mind. So as long as the mind exists as an entity, as it seems, there, there will be a duality because it's the nature of, of the mind. So, <clears throat> and it's part of, of, you know, as I say, it's part of the, the, the ordinary uh, person's arrangement with life is, is to, to try to make the best out of it um, rather than uh, finding a very deep, uh, well, what you call it, scrutiny of, you know, of what, what is the, this, this entity called mind. Who is it? Who is responsible for the world as, as it is. So you, uh, to get to return to your biography briefly, um, it was uh, um, in your book, The Birth of the Lion, it's clear that uh, Gangaji played an important part in your coming to understand the sort of thing that you've just discussed. And I'm wondering if you can speak about what that how you experienced that relationship from from the start, and um, what you came to see in in that relationship? Yes, well, the term relationship is is maybe not not quite correct, <laughs> but it's we tend to use this term. Mm -hmm. um, it's not really a term that that is that is adequate for for the the meeting with. With the realized uh, teacher, um, well, I, I said in this first book, you know, where I just uh, describe the the first two years after this 
almost uh, final accident um, that I, I I would never had uh, had the the opportunity or I mean, no the the the, um, <clears throat> the capacity to meet uh, the master if I hadn't had this accident. So okay. through this 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 accident uh, was a, a, uh, you know a complete destruction of of the world. Um, but uh, it also showed in the first two years after this accident that something can be completely destroyed, but the mind has the power to really reconstitute itself seemingly from nothingness. You know, it's a very subtle entity which we tend to, to minimize from our ordinary perspective. It's a very powerful entity and this uh, I had experiences of this reconstitution of mind and I would have never been uh, I guess it would have it what would have what no sorry what would have happened yes if I hadn't met Gangaji is that the mind uh, it was just a question of time that the mind would have you know re uh, materialized itself it's it's not a process like from now to the next moment it's a very slow and subtle process the mind comes creeping in i see so um so then what i'm what i'm understanding you to say about this is that um uh by by losing the capacity to operate in the ordinary world in an ordinary way that opened up another capacity to be able to access and be open to uh, a teacher is that is that a fair statement yes i was i would say so i mean the there was i was in a state uh definitely not a state of mind so there was hardly any thinking process left. And I was kind of, it was like completely drawn into this, what I call the, the shock of the absolute. Because you see life, what we call life and the, what we, what people experience is the daily mm, <clears throat> state of uh, being is a, can be called like a film, but the film has to be projected on something. Uh, so when suddenly the film is over, then what is left is the screen. But for some reason, most people uh, don't, don't, they, they are not, they don't fall into this experience of the screen. They just fall into kind of unconsciousness or they have so-called near-death experiences which is not what I call the death experience. This is like, you know, tunnels of light or things like this, uh, or experiences outside of the physical identification. But this is not the final end of every phenomena. But what, what, what I was experiencing is, is kind of a, 
uh, what would you call this, like a rupture of the film or something? Mm -hmm. Can you say this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the film suddenly interrupted and this film was called Life or Me. This film was suddenly interrupted mm -hmm. and nothing was left. But what still consciousness was left. So awareness, you were aware of uh, your presence, but not in any form or any... Uh, uh, it was only, not a, the, only awareness aware of itself. Yeah. And so the, 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 you, you said that the uh, mind, uh, I don't know if you used the word creeps back in, that slips back in, I think is what you said, but... No, creeping, um, I said that, yeah. Oh, okay. Good, okay. Um, mm. So... Creeping on little cat's feet. That's a, uh, a quoting a poet there. So, um, but the mind creeps back in, and um, uh, you were experiencing that, and yet you still had the ability to operate in the world well enough to be able to get get your body to the context where you could become aware of the possibility of awakening. Is that um, another? Would you would you go along with that description? And if not, how how would you differ? How would you change it? Mm, no, I wouldn't really go along with it because the the body was was in a sense I could say there was no more body. I mean the the whole sense of a uh, material world, which is like you know, um, which has substance, real substance this this uh, this experience dissolved so i can describe that that there was more like uh subtle you know phenomena um the body was part of it and there was dysfunction a lot of dysfunction also in the physical on the physical level because the brain had the the, the central nervous system had damages Mm -hmm. um, but on a higher level, uh, on a cognitive level, but talking about higher cognition, you know, mm -hmm. there was an extreme uh, capacity to um, yes, to to realize. Because, you know, this it was like this capacity was set free. And this is what, 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 what we want that happens in, in, in students of the path, that, that this, this capacity is being set free because there's so much life force absorbed uh, or sucked in the identification with the physical layers of being. And the mental, of course. Got it. So when that when that identification is uh, reduced to some extent, then what I understand you to be saying is that the uh, available life force is uh, able to move in a very different direction, or that high, higher, I guess cognition is a word, but uh, it's, it's more like a higher seeing of uh, the nature of of our reality is available. Well, it's, it's the intelligence of what I call the intelligence of the fourth brain. You know, I also 
in the inner school. I work with uh, the teachings of the Gurdjieff school, mm-hmm. and the concept of the three brains is uh, is it's, it's the universal wisdom. It's a teaching that Gurdjieff also uses, and uh, this also gives rise to the concept of the fourth brain. So the fourth brain is like an impersonal intelligence that people have available, but everybody would have this intelligence available if there was not so much intelligence, um, you know, bound to the lower levels of identification of consciousness. I'm talking about the physical, but I'm even talking about the emotional and the mental, these three levels, you know, if we, if we free uh, this, uh, if we free the, the identification from, from, from that, there is an intelligence that is extraordinary. It's not personal. It's not my intelligence. It's, it's an extraordinary impersonal intelligence that we can compare this state to. You know, there is a book roll open and we can just read the cosmic laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, our own teacher um, uh, stressed the importance of what Gurdjieff, the practice that Gurdjieff called self-observation, and um, and then discussed a uh, a type of uh, cognition or awareness or um, uh, um, whatever you want to call it that, it that he called senior to, that is older than or prior to. Um, the understanding that we have customarily in that state that you called and we call sleep. Mm. So um, uh, that senior status is always there, but we don't we don't we don't have training to access it unless we engage in a in some kind of practice or work or perhaps in your case. Um, Accidents. <laughs> An accident. Yeah. I, I'm presuming you don't recommend that to your students, but um, uh, an easier an easier path, I assume. Yeah, it's it's not an easy path. Uh, it's not one that, that you can go voluntarily. Um, sometimes we are thrown into the shocks of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cannot wait for these shocks. We have to do what I say to people. You have to do your homework, you know. We cannot just sit there and wait for shocks of life or for the real big, big stroke, the final realization of everything. We just have to sometimes, you know, times change. There are moments where where we can only take small steps. It's just the quality of time. Mm-hmm. And then some sometimes... There is a moment where a huge step, maybe which we could call a quantum leap, is possible. When I communicated, when I, when this, all this happened, you know, this accident, and then uh, I, I just a few weeks after this state of clinical death, I was sitting with uh, Gangachi in this uh, satsang, and I knew, I knew, I mean, there was. It was such a radical, everything was so radical that was happening. I knew this, now is the time. Now is the chance. I have to take this chance and 
give up everything. There is nothing more that I wanted to hold on to. I mean, I was not interested in family. I wasn't interested in the past. I wasn't interested in friends. I was not interested in anything. I knew this is the moment. This is the chance. You have to take it. You know, if you don't take it, you miss it. And you don't, and you don't get a second chance typically is, is uh, my understanding, at least at the level that, that it sounds like you're talking about because of the extremity of what you were, um, what you had experienced. Well, people do get second chances, you know, but uh, as I say, when there is this moment, which I call the, I think uh, sometimes, you know, to, to read my English books, I need dictionaries myself. <laughs> uh, but um, I think it's called, I call it the rupture in time. Mm -hmm. So this, this moment where the, 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 the seemingly continuous flow of time breaks and the abyss opens. This moment, this is a big moment. And this moment, we should, I mean, of course, we, I can use if I have the, the vigilance and the awareness to, to um, be aware of the depth of this whole situation. So people do get second chances, but it could need could need another five hundred years. I mean, who knows? You know. So, so I, uh, I'm interested in when you describe the the moment the rupture occurring. That in a way, one is is outside of the normal functioning of uh, a human life or human action. So what is it that one does in that moment to uh, make that understanding or that space available all the time? Because normally we configure action as I'm going to do something and it's very eye-oriented. So what is acting? Well, <clears throat> the the only valuable and fruitful action of the inner path is called uh, self-inquiry, uh, self-observation. You could, you, you know, you mentioned this before, is, 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 is a sister of self-inquiry, I would say, or you could even say it's part of self-inquiry. So this, what we call self-inquiry is, has an active and a passive side. It's not an, only an action. It has uh, <clears throat> an active and a completely passive quality. And these two qualities come together and, and, and form the potential of, of, of the intelligence of self-inquiry. So that's all that has to be done. You know, the whole, uh, everything, outer life has to take care of itself. And uh, I, I, I'm still, it's still amazing for me to, to, to see afterwards how this, how this, how I managed to, um, for example, to, um, gain some money to get, you know, to, <laughs> to work, uh, in the outside world because the, the, the body was in a really bad state. So it's amazing how this worked and how it took care of itself. 
So there's only, you know, only this completely, this complete um, concentration on self-inquiry and the, the awareness of myself and everything else, the whole outside world is, is not interesting. So it, it's the posture of or the action of being present to what, what happens and not reacting to or not withdrawing from what life presents. Is that a way of saying that? No, it's like a withdrawing of any kind of relationship with objects in life. Okay. This this doesn't mean that I'm that I'm isolated uh, from life. This is maybe what the rational mind would would conclude. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. Doesn't necessarily mean that I'm isolated, because it this this deepening process is is dominated by uh, process of, of um, dissolving duality. You know, it becomes the oneness of everything. But the interest in uh, phenomenal objects in the outside world just diminishes more and more. And, you know, you just, you could just sit there and read a spiritual book or don't do anything and you 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 have no more <clears throat> drive to to go to different places or to to meet people and you know so so when um your first encounter with gangaji um is it is it then accurate to say that that moment was a moment when you realized that your path was what you're calling self-inquiry and that that was all that was in once in, in a in a more profound sense the realest thing that was um happening for you not that there was a you i don't want to get mm -hmm. <laughs> too technical here well meeting meeting the master is only a reflection of self so there was it was as if an image reflected the invisible self so this presence of the self uh, mm, <clears throat> gave me the, the immediate knowledge that now uh, it's only about the fathomless deepening of of the understanding so, so that every, you know, every hindrance, every obstacle, every, every dust of, of, of every mind, you know, that should get out of the way so that only, only remains what is real. And this interest, uh, drove my, what you call the relationship, but meaning my meeting with her and the, the writing letters and visiting satsang and that's all. And everything else was just a, you know, a side product of life. The, the physical life happened by itself and it was not so important. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
One of the interesting things um, in uh, your description, your autobiographical description in The Birth of the Lion to me, is just this feature that you mentioned of writing letters, both to Gangaji and her teacher Pundaji. So um, I'm wondering if you could talk about how that was important for you and, and what, what, what is it about the writing of the letters, if anything, that was uh, of particular assistance in that process? Yes, I encourage, you know, I also encourage uh, students to write, to write letters. Uh, handwriting is preferable. Um, because this process of writing, uh, which I call, you know, letters to the self, letters from self to self, mm -hmm. is not just an expression, but the moment of, of writing is part of self-inquiry, of the concept of self-inquiry, and part of a, a cognitive intelligent process of, of, of deepening understanding. So these letters were really important for me. And um, of course, answers were welcome, but uh, the answers are not uh, compulsory. I mean, they, they can come, they cannot come. The letters itself are the most important medium for this process of uh, self-understanding. Mm, and self in this case is uh, typically spelled with capital letters, right? Um, it's not, we don't mean the self, just, just for listeners who may not be familiar with the language. The, this is not the identity, not, not the egoic identity or uh, my story about uh, what my body does in this world. This is this is something more foundational. This is what what is there when <clears throat> you said the uh, uh, flow of time actually stops. Mm. Well, of course, you know that different teachings use different terms, and some some. Uh, differentiate the small self and the, the real, the, the big or the real self. And the mind, the thinking mind is, is usually an equivalent for the small self. Um, but in the small, this, this mind identity is, well, we, we could call it like a, a misconception. You know, we could call it a misconception. And this misconception is surviving in people because people do not use the, the capacity, they, they, the potential that would be available to them, the intelligent capacity for self-inquiry. This, this makes this illusionary concept this survive in people, you know? The, the, the self-inquiry is not so much about the body. The, the, the physical is is not uh, in, the, in the presence of the importance. I mean, it's good to to include and to integrate the, the physical body in the inner practice, 
and I also do this. I, I, Gurdjieff did it, you know, Gurdjieff always said, you know, work in the three rooms at the same time. Yeah. And uh, we also do this practice, but I also stress to people that these three rooms, there is a hierarchical um, relationship. It's not as, as, as the first room has the same capacity as the third, you know. If we want to trace the mind, this is not to be found in the physical and it's not to be found in the, in the emotional body. So if we want to get really to the, the core of everything, we have to go to the I thought, just as Ramana had the, this, Ramana Maharshi at this very clear and total radical teaching, get to the I thought, cut the I thought through, uh, <clears throat> realization and then the mind is cut once and forever but people don't use this you know they have to learn to use this capacity for self-inquiry so that that leads to the question of um, um, some people seem to find their way to seek to use that capacity and others don't. Is there a, a, um, an admonition, a suggestion that, that, you, that you would have to help people understand um, the variation we seem to see from person to person in, in this? What do you mean? Some people don't seek? Yes, some people don't seek. Right. Why is that? Is it is it is it is that a problem to be fixed, or is that a natural uh, uh, condition of the nature of the distribution of? Well, if they don't seek, they can they can wait for grace. They can mm -hmm. wait for the shock of the absolute. Maybe in as I said, in five hundred years, it could happen. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't seek, you you don't find. Right. We have moments of mercy. We have moments, there are like what I, what I call these really big moments, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, we cannot allow to, to just sit there and wait for these moments. And people don't do this anyway. It's just a simple uh, lack of interest that makes people uh, not seek, meaning not be interested in uh, what is real. So uh, la um, we were having a discussion last night um, over dinner about a story from the Buddhist tradition. It's actually a story in the Lotus Sutra. Mm -hmm. And in this story, there's a, uh, a father who has children. And it turns and the father discovers that the house that the children are playing in is on fire and he calls to them to escape the burning house but they are so in, engrossed in playing they're so involved in playing with their toys in the house that they don't pay attention to his calls for them mm. to exit the burning house so um, what the father does is um, tell the children that there's this much better toy outside the house, a, a uh, chariot or something. I forget the detail. 
and and that gets the ch- that elicits the children to um, perk up and realize that oh there's something even better outside the house than the toys that they're playing with so this is um, this story is used to uh, illustrate some points that Buddhist teachers would um, would point to um, and I'm wondering if this if if there's anything that you would accept or not accept in that description as being helpful to people um, in this question of discovering whether there is uh, something beyond their ordinary identifications. You know, the what we call the natural state of being in this state, there is no necessity to to be a missionary or to to save people mm-hmm. it, it all it all happens to the law of resonance it you know if people uh, I mean I also work with uh, the understanding of uh, evolutionary philosophy in which you can see that you know that the the consciousness is <clears throat> Is, uh, can be described in different, uh, layers and layers or clouds, we could also say. So, um, these clouds are universal. And if, you know, someone is, is, his, his mind, uh, is, is living in a cloud. I mean, the mind is actually constituting, con- constituting this cloud. But if, if you're living in a certain cloud, which is relatively seemingly far away from from uh, <clears throat> spiritual understanding or spiri- spiritual interest, then the resonance is simply not, not happening. It's just simply not happening. You can do what you want. It's simply not happening. So everything is happening to the laws of resonance. So uh, if law, the resonance means that at least there has to, has to be a subtle um let's say um reception of of the you know the flame of the heart inside of the inner flame uh the the desire for for something beyond um <clears throat> my daily life so if this flame is is there even if it is still small if you can reach this flame then the laws of resonance they can they can they can they can do their work and this flame can be nourished it can finally become a fire <clears throat> but if this flame is so you know so completely uh veiled through tamasic uh <clears throat> tamasic states of mind or deception then there is nothing to be done in this moment you know there is nothing to be done so if I were to relate what you just said to what Rob said then if there is a case where there is some level of resonance then it might be meaningful to talk about skillful means to help to make that 
opening uh, more effective or to cultivate the growth of that spark, if you will. And skillful means may take the form of promising a better toy outside the house. Mm. But, but that is something that would be a useful device to encourage someone to have to work in a particular way such that they can have a deeper, more profound realization in their own terms. Well, it, it's no coincidence that in this story, <clears throat> the, the people we're dealing with are children. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say this is also a metaphor, you see, for the, what, what the, the, the so-called childlike mind. This is even a concept of Shankara, you know? He, 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 he <clears throat> the, the childlike mind in people was one of his big conditions for for the capacity for awakening in a human being and the childlike mind means that yes that, that there is uh that this inner mm, flame is is that the, the the path the inner path to this flame is not completely what you call obstructed it's it's, yeah. it's open there is an openness so these the, the children, they, they respond, you see? They respond. I mean, if, if, if we were dealing with, um, ossified characters, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, dirty old man, uh, you know, complete self, uh, self, uh, <clears throat> would you say, absorbed in, in their own uh, story, which has petrified then this would be a different uh, image, a different concept. You know, they are not open to to respond in any way. You see, but the children, they are. You have to, you know, you have to play a little trick uh, to to lure them. You know, come outside. You know, but but they are open to hear. Interesting. So. In uh, uh, particularly in the uh, intelligence of awakening, you you speak quite a bit about the um, the challenge or the you know what might call it the fundamental problem of the the conditioning we have with the thinking mind, and in particular that we are conditioned to always look outside of ourselves for the answer <laughs> that inner dissatisfaction. And that the answer ultimately in a spiritual tradition or a spiritual path is to seek inside. So when I look at the world today, um, particularly the Western world, I see quite a lot of hypnotism of thing. You know, everyone is focused outside of themselves. And, mm. you know, this gets back to this question. Is it, is it something that, um, is this something that is just, the way things are in this particular time and it's serving its particular function or is there an obligation or an opportunity to try to shift that in society or is it even a possibility does this, does this or fit? or is it only just about individuals i mean in one sense it only ever could be only about individuals but i think stuart's asking for something that would entrain or um, invite many individuals. 
Yeah. Is there some, is there a, sometimes, for instance, uh, there's discussions about a, a, um, a, a society of enlightenment or a, a community of enlightenment. And of course, in the world today, we see pockets of people seeming to be awakened uh, to higher possibilities. And yet even those pockets often come with their own sets of identification. So I think my broader question is, what do we do? What does one do as a spiritual practitioner to offer possibility to the wider society? <laughs> if anything. <clears throat> You're thinking about all the other people. <laughs> um, I understand, but you know, um, what we can change on the level of society, uh, on the collective level is limited. Uh, it's easier to change things on this level than on the internal level. Uh, but the, the, the change and the capacity of change is limited. A change that is so radical that we call it transformation cannot happen on the level of society. It cannot happen in, in, in masses of people. It can only happen in individuals. Of course, it can happen in more and more individuals. Um, but inner path means uh, that this one individual has to do his inner work. And uh, this inner work is also a work of aloneness. You know, it's not a work of togetherness. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean, as I say again, it doesn't mean to be isolated from other people and to live in caves, uh, metaphorically. <clears throat> but it means that it's very clear this is a work that has to be done inside. And the transformation that happens and the, the enlightenment of the surrounding will happen, but it's only like a byproduct of this inner work. So all the other work in the outside, on the outside level, you know, how to change being uh, involved in, in ideas of how to change society and how does the society of the future look like, you know, as, as many Dreams like the transhumanists and people like this who believe, you know, that the great enlightenment will happen through technical means, that the intelligence can, can just uh, reach completely other levels. It's completely naive, naive ideas of people who haven't understood that transformation can only go through the inner uh, <clears throat> outlet, the inner path you have to go through this in the, in the depth of the invisible inner worlds which glue together the whole world mm -hmm. the mind the mind is the glue of the whole world and the mind has to be seen in its uh, false and deceptive nature <clears throat> and of course all this, this other work, you know, on a, on a level of society, which we could call political work and uh, 
um, <clears throat> work for poor people and, and for all this kind of thing. You know, this is, this happens, this goes on happening by itself, but we don't need the, the vision for the outside society is only is not the core interest of the inner path. It happens by itself. We don't really need a vision for the future society, you know? If we, if people would, I mean, if people really would, if more people would understand the inner path and withdraw attention completely inside and in a sense leave this over, this entertainment world of the senses, then well, future life, the, the vision would, of, of a life in balance would, would become true anyway, you know, because all the imbalances of outside life are only, as you know, a consequence of the imbalances of the mental, of the mind again, you know, it's all just the mind. So working in the, on the outside uh, has to happen. I know it. It is not the, the task of of people who have in who have reached the the natural state, usually, but it has to happen. It it, it does happen, but the the vision is only the vision for awakening, and in the awakened state, everything just happens the way it happens. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, there is creativity, there is intelligence there is everything you need but we don't need visions for how how should we live and you know all this kind of stuff we need to take a short break at the hour you are listening to the mystical positivist i'm your host Stuart goodnick joining me is co-host rob schmidt this week on the show we present a pre-recorded conversation with spiritual teacher om c parkin Om C. Parkin's spiritual teaching, also referred to as inner silence, is based on the Eastern Advaita Vedanta tradition. The teaching also encompasses Western experiential paths, including Christian mysticism and George Gurdjieff's The Fourth Way, as well as modern psychological and psychotherapeutic methods. The goal is self-knowledge through inner work, which ultimately leads to the realization of the true human nature. Om is the author of a variety of books, writings, and articles, including the recent English publications of The Digital Age, The Birth of the Lion, Non-Duality as a Way of Life, and Intelligence of Awakening, Navigating the Wisdom Path. We'll be right back. Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with spiritual teacher Om C. Parkin. Om C. Parkin's spiritual teaching, also referred to as inner silence, is based on the Eastern Advaita Vedanta tradition. Om is the author of a variety of books, writings, and articles, including the recent English publications of The Digital Age, The Birth of the Lion, Non-Duality as a Way of Life, and Intelligence of Awakening, Navigating the Spiritual Path. Thank you. That that makes perfect sense. Um, But it also um, leads to a question that, at least in the American spiritual scene, uh, seems to be, um, has been emerging in in the last few years. And that question 
is about the use of substances to, en to supposedly enhance um, the process of self-inquiry. I'm talking about various different drugs. I know that before your realization experience uh, or moment, moment you, um, you just spoke about how you had experimented with psychedelics or at least were hanging out with people so doing. Mm, yeah. So, so um, I've just been reading a book by an American uh, Zen teacher, Brad Warner, who um, who also um, experimented, but is uh, uh, strongly advises against people misunderstanding that drugs are an equivalent to the sort of work that he would uh, encourage. Um, in the Zen tradition, of course, what you're calling self-inquiry, I think, would be configured as Zazen. Uh, so, um, so I'm wondering uh, about your own position now um, with your students uh, on this question of. Uh, it seems like people want a uh, want a, a, a faster, easier method, a quick fix, a quick fix, um, as we say in English. Um, to accomplish things that self-inquiry is designed to do. Can you speak about that? You mean enlightenment in the sense of modern, comfortable ways? <laughs> That's another way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, first of all, you know, we have to understand that if, if we use a medium or a, what could you call it, a catalyst, mm -hmm. um, like a psychedelic drug, uh, it's not only about the drug itself, it's finally about the intention and the purity of the intention using it. Mm. See, if people, uh, many people, believe that the spiritual path is just like a chain of extraordinary spiritual experiences, you know, being extraordinary uh, <clears throat> uh, localizations, being an extraordinary, uh, having extraordinary experiences all beyond the uh, seeming ordinariness of the moment. So this is uh, an understanding for beginners. This true spirituality is not a chain of extraordinary experiences. It's not, finally not about experiences at all. It's about uh, dissolution of experiences and it's about realization, which is not an experience, but uh, a, a happening where I could say finally the, the relative and the absolute meet together and, and, and merge and become one. Mm -hmm. Realization is the moment where something becomes finally real. That's why it's called realization. Um, realization is not necessarily, it is, as I say, it's neither an experience nor is it necessarily an extraordinary moment. You know, when you read biographies of, of masters 
have who have reached real, highest realization, like the Indian master Ramesh Basikar, for example. You know, when he describes this moment of realization, it is a very, a very soft, a completely subtle moment. It's a moment of almost nothingness. It's a moment in which, from the outside, you cannot see anything, nothing. So it, a, a moment that is so, so subtle. And yet, in this subtlety, the whole world changes. Everything changes in this one moment. So this is something I, I yes, of course, we, we transmit to, to students that, that uh, they shouldn't make the, have the misunderstanding that uh, through an experience, for example, you know, through the catalyst of psychedelic drugs, final realization can never be attained because first of all, there's still, there's already the intention to why, why does somebody take this drug? You know, mm -hmm. what is the intention? You know, um, the intention is usually to, to make some extraordinary experiences. I'm not against these drugs in they they can in, in certain moments and on certain levels, they can definitely, if the embed, the, the, what do you call it? The embedment or the embeddedness, embeddedness yeah. The, the embeddedness is, is correct. The embeddedness in the, in the wisdom teaching is, is available. Then, yeah, sure. Then you can use certain mediums. You can do certain things and like, like these drugs and they will have their, their limited, um, <clears throat> fruitful uh, healing um, consequence. That make that makes sense. Um, and um, so this, um, uh, I, I mean, uh, your, your views are, uh, uh, accord with with my own conclusions about about this. And yet, people s seem to be. Uh, drawn as they are drawn, uh, you, you even, the reason this came up is because, for, for, in my mind, I think, is because you linked it to uh, the technological fixes. And I think this is, I think you're right to point to the fascination with um, uh, a fast track to getting out of suffering um, that people imagine drugs offer or, or technologies or you offer. use I mean you use the term a uh, medium or uh, so a drug is uh, creates a, a mediation and there'll always be a subtle attachment to the mediation uh, just like if I have a particular experience I mean even practices can be uh, problematic this way you can have an attachment to the medium and there's always something there with you in order to facilitate what you're seeking. And I don't know that that ultimately is as useful. Well, there's this Zen uh, saying that you definitely know that the finger that points to the moon is not the moon. And uh, if you're only, uh, you know, identified with fingers, <clears throat> that point to the moon, you get absorbed by by something that is definitely not 
at all the essence of what all this is about. Yeah, I, I mean that's why you know the further you you the, the, the higher the teachings, the less rituals, the less uh, the less practices, the less uh, surroundings you have. I mean, if if you meet an advisor teacher, I mean, there is there is no more rituals, there is no more practices, there is almost no more nothing. You know, it's only about the core of 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 total realization in the you could say in this meeting with death only this eye to eye you know there is nothing more needed and everything else is just a distraction finally mm -hmm. got it so um but that uh, uh then leads my uh, uh inquiring mind to want to know how your organization works as an organization to facilitate this this eye to eye um, advaitas uh, realization. So, um, and I want to frame it in terms of uh, you've you use Gurdjieff uh, as you've said, and Gurdjieff uh, believed in the or used the term school. So the organization that he set up, he understood as a as a school. The implication, of course, being not unlike what you've just pointed to, which is that one doesn't stay in school customarily throughout the entirety of one's life, but um, one graduates, as it were. So, um, but different different spiritual traditions have different ways to configure um, community or sangha. That is a, a community of, of people who seek what you're what you've been discussing. So I'm wondering how your organization uh, uh, configures itself and, and how you handle this. Well, I use the term school okay. also. Yes, I do. Um, I, I have a school in a school. And um, not all of my students are part of this school. I mean, this, this school is a radical path, but some students that uh, have less commitment, they just come to Darshan, uh, will come to certain meetings, mm -hmm. and nobody is forced to, to find a certain, you know, um, level of, of commitment. Um, I mean, not everybody is, is open uh, is, is, and has the, the maturity to, uh, and the capacity just to understand the, 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 the true meeting with an impersonal teacher. So every level is, is, is happening, you know, level that, that have very little commitment where people just come to retreats or whenever I go to a place, they, they come there and they're they not part of the school. And then there's an inner circle uh, in the school where the teachings of the, the eternal philosophy and <clears throat> are, well, structured, are in a structured way uh, transmitted and um, on all levels. 
on the level of the three brains. Ah. Just like, like Gurdjieff taught, and this is just what we do. So I'm wondering um, about also the role of silence, because I've looked on the website um, for the organization, and I see that, that silence is, is pointed to um, as one of the uh, practices that uh, people are encouraged to do. Um, can, you, can you speak about the role of, of silence in, in the organization and, and in uh, the, the way that you lead people, assuming that's the right word to use? Well, I mean, I'm part of my time living here in the monastery that I founded. And it's, it's uh, of course, a monastery is always a place dedicated to silence, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So there are also silent weeks and, and, I mean, silent, silent retreats where people don't talk. Um, so silence is, is uh, important. It is the, the core of what, what the, what we call the silent tradition. Um, other levels of inner work, um, which are more dedicated to the level of rajas. Are you are familiar maybe with the three levels of tamas, rajas, and sattva. Mm -hmm. So um, on rajas, it's more, it's still more an active uh, happening. So the further you, you move, the, the more silent it becomes. Silence is, is always uh, behind every teaching, even if it seems, you know, active and, and uh, dynamic. Uh, but silence is always behind. Um, we have to open the capacity for silence. I mean, we, you cannot just teach people, as you know from Zazen, as, as you just, you cannot just people to teach people to be still or to just be silent. Um, you cannot just teach the mind to be still. That's what I want to say. Uh, the stillness of mind, which is the, the final meaning of the silent tradition, um, the stillness of mind is, is, what happens in, you know, when the, mm, all this false activity of mind, which is to almost 100% an activity of compensation for something else, when all this activity naturally, naturally just uh, slows down, uh, there is no more importance for this activity. And then silence, um, becomes a more and more natural state. So that process is cultivated clearly that, that if one sits in silence or with a community that is sitting in silence, does that in and of itself naturally allow the urgency of mind to settle down? Or does a student have to take a more active step in order to facilitate that process? Well, no, we, 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 we do cultivate, as you, this is a good term that you used, you know, that uh, we can always cultivate 
we can cultivate weeds or we can cultivate roses, you know. <laughs> 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 uh, so uh, it depends. Uh, so in this monastery, of course, in this place of silence, we, we approach silence, we cultivate silence, and, and the practice of sitting meditation is one of these uh, practices, you know. Or, as I just said, a silent retreat, which draws, which draws the mind in a natural way, in, which gives the means and the surrounding where the mind is drawn inwards in a deeper, natural, silent uh, position. So those conditions make it possible for a student to have better access or more access to a state of silence by virtue of the action of the community. Yes, these conditions serve silence, although I have to, you know, uh, say that Punja uh, Chi, who was uh, a very radical uh, teacher, um, you know, tended to to uh, send people to the Indian marketplace to uh, to get in touch with silence, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> yes, so that uh, in this radical understanding, it becomes so clear that silence is is definitely not uh, this silence of mind is is not. Uh, part of the outside conditions, mm -hmm. whether there is uh, <clears throat> you're living in a, in a monastery or you're living in the, in the middle of a big city where there is a lot of noise, um, becoming silent, you cannot wait for good conditions. But, but still, and yet, this is not in contradiction to uh, our way of nourishing uh, good conditions for allowing the mind to become silent. So in addition to the cultivation of silence, um, uh, it's my understanding that you presumably also rely or use um, satsang as a, as a tool. And uh, my own teacher used to uh, say he would encourage me and others to go and listen to many different spiritual teachers and doing a talk or or conducting uh, satsang and um, would admonish me to uh, would suggest that I would that I allow what was being said or what was not being said to enter my awareness with as little obstruction as possible in such contexts. Is that the sort of, th does that resonate with your understanding of how, how you might suggest students approach that tool? I'm which I'm which, assuming that you do which, use. Which, which tool? The tool of, of being in the presence of um, a teacher. Other teachers. Other teachers. Well, 
I don't know what you mean by other teachers. I thought you meant, I thought you said that. No, no, a student being in satsang with a teacher or, mm. um, uh, or simply being listening to a talk even by a teacher, you know, uh, a question and answer perhaps. Does that, is that a tool that your school uses and would you, um, agree that this is a, a, a tool that is helpful? Neither do I send people to meet other teachers, nor do I avoid it. Mm -hmm. uh, but my students, they know that it's not forbidden to, to see other teachers. We just, there's the foundation that, uh, that works with me, or that I founded actually, uh, just organized a congress with a different Advaita teachers from different countries in Austria. Mm -hmm. And um, the meeting with other teachers in, has different levels. I can always say it is it is definitely fruitful for a um, process of uh, discrimination in this in the in the person. It can also, of course, uh, bring up um, inner turbulences. Hmm. Can I say that? Yeah, yeah. Because um, of course, maybe you know, people. I mean, people. I say the students. They can have uh, misunderstandings about contradictory parts of the teachings. Uh, or it could also be that this other teacher is just definitely not a realized teacher and has a conceptual knowledge that that uh, is pro or contra against uh, something that I teach. So, uh, yes, there is a capacity for misunderstandings uh, and uh, for delusion. But uh, finally, it is serving uh, earnest students and nourishing, cultivating their power of discrimination. Um, when I, for example, there was, you know, there were, years ago, there was another teacher and he uh, interrupted the, um, the communication because people were starting to run away from his place, you know, and uh, they moved here and uh, I, I didn't encourage these uh, students to come here, but it just happened. Uh, so, of course, in this case, in this moment, one should ask, you know, I mean, why do, why is this happening? Is maybe the teaching that, that, that is happening through this teacher, is it just limited, you know, is the, the, the capacity is not completely uh, available? Uh, so, I just leave this whole business to itself, you know, I don't, it's not necessary to artificially bind people. The commitment, I mean, the true commitment in people on the inner path has to come from inside anyway. It's not a commitment to the outside teacher, it's an inner commitment that can be reflected through the meeting with the outside teacher. Well, th thank you. Um, I, I probably wasn't quite clear in formulating my question. I mean, I was interested, and I'm glad you uh, 
you know, um, responded in the way that you did. But what I, I was also even more interested in is in your, um, in your school, um, is that you, you, we, you spoke about, um, silence and then clearly, at least from your books, it would appear that that question and answer is a, is with you is is an important tool as well. And I'm wondering if your view is that simply being in the presence of a master or a, or a great spiritual teacher or any spiritual teacher um, in and of itself can have an effect to the degree that the student is open to receive the impression food available or um, or is it more about being present to what the teacher has to say well it's all about silence uh, and in, in my newest book which is not which has not been translated in English yet uh, I'm talking about uh, silent uh, words and uh, mm, the different levels of silence. Mm. Um, there can be also, there can even be something like a loud silence or a noisy silence. That's why uh, the term silence is actually not correct because finally it's about stillness. Ah. It's not really about silence. It's about stillness. Um, I think you in English, right? Is it, is it, am I correct that we use the term silence also for not speaking? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But uh, sometimes... Or, or, the, the, and or an absence of noise. It could absence be of noise. It could be yes. absence of noise, or it could be not speaking. Yes, yes. Well, there can be, that's what I say, there can be something like a loud silence. Not to speak can be still, can still be very loud. Uh, and on the other hand, there can be something like silent or still, even still words that come from a place of stillness within. So it just depends, you know, on the personality or the natural human being of of this this form of the teacher whether words are used or not used so Ramana used very few words and uh, for me I can say there are moments where I use words and there are other moments where I just don't use words so the silent presence is what it's all about with words or without words but the silent presence gives uh, a space in which the mind can completely surrender if mm -hmm. if the mind is 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 open. And that's part of uh, uh, the product of a commitment to have that. Uh, emerge I presume sorry I didn't get this sorry uh, that's that's part of um, or a product of the commitment to create that or or in the, move in that direction in the student in the student 
You mean part of the inner commitment the student has? Yes. Like an inner vow. An inner vow. An inner vow. Yes, yes. Yes, an inner vow for truth, an inner vow for the path. Um, yes, definitely. Um, well, even without commitment, you know, uh, people can be gracefully touched by silence and be absorbed by, by, by silence for a moment. There can be a totally unexpected uh, meeting with deep silence. And as you know from, and as I know also from the stories of many, many people, this can even happen, you know, in a, in a child with, uh, with six years of age. But these unexpected experiences of deep silence they will remain experiences because the mind will come back and take over. So this is again the big uh, <clears throat> difference, you know, is it just an experience or is the soil, the inner soil uh, there that, that allows not just an experience of, of silence that, that closes again, but a deepening continuously deepening silence of mind with no obstruction uh, through thinking processes that, that are not fruitful for the soul. Yeah, the, the uh, teacher, Lee Lazowick, uh, who we uh, knew for many years, uh, used to say that it's very easy to make people enlightened uh, for a moment, but it's very difficult mm. for that enlightenment to actually take root and to become a lived reality. And I understand you to be speaking of the same thing that we can, it's possible to convey or to, uh, to experience to give someone a very different context for a moment, but Without the, without the practice or without the foundation to systematically put that into practice on a daily basis, then the mind can take that experience and relativize it or put it into a construct. And the power and the, re the immediacy of it uh, goes away. Yes, the mind is just uh, embedding it in its own construction that, that, that has not been completely destroyed. And in the first years of teaching, you know, I, I emphasized more. I was interested in, in transmitting more the, the experience of enlightenment of one moment. And this interest uh, is not there any longer. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm more interested now in, in transmitting really the, you know, the, the, the complete knowledge of, of, self and non-self uh, so that the enlightenment that the, the, the enlightenment is not a tr transitory <laughs> experience but it's, it's not about these experiences it's only about realization because realization doesn't come and go it comes but it doesn't leave any longer anymore <laughs> once it's there it's 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 there so you mentioned a moment ago, speaking about 
some other teachers that uh, might be less realized and more conceptual. And in the book Intelligence of Awakening, you draw a distinction which uh, uh, stayed with me, which is the distinction between having experience and then allowing that experience to guide the formation of concepts to speak about it versus having a bunch of concepts and allowing the concepts to pull experience along. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that distinction is an interesting one because there's uh, particularly now with such great availability of all spiritual traditions at one's fingertips, uh, at least the words about them. The words about them. It's possible to have this kind of artificial intelligence engine that can sound very spiritual and throw out many terms. And yet there's a profound difference between words that are assembled in response to the magnetism of experience from experience that is sort of uh, pulled along through the uh, collection of ideas. Mm. I wonder... I'm wondering if you could speak speak to that a little bit in terms of uh, when you speak, when you talk, presumably you are starting from an ex a point of realization and allowing concepts to follow. Yes, erudition can follow. Uh, you know, finding, simply uh, formulating and, and structuring uh, what, is, what, is, what is in realization, in still realization already there. Um, in the concept of self-inquiry, the no-mind, the no-mind gives the frame for experiences. So it's as if, you see, as if every moment again and again you uh, take the, the sheet of paper which is blank, which is only white, and, and the experience you have made in the last moment, throw it away and take the blank sheet of paper again in, this, in the next moment making the next experience. In an, you see, the mind, uh, we don't need the mind, the thinking mind, to preserve uh, what is valuable uh, for uh, a process of deepening understanding. It happens anyway, and it happens by itself. So this concept of taking a new sheet of paper blank every given moment again is... is to point to this destructive um, tendency of the mind to always, uh, you know, create a new frame of ideas for in which then experiences are made. So the next moment of experience is just within the frame of the, the concept that has been reconstituted again. So no mind uh, is the frame for experience and this experience is new it is fresh it's unknown and mysteriously um, the uh, extract the, the cognitive extracts from past experiences are not lost 
they are not lost. Even mm-hmm. if the, the thinking mind does not uh, use or his archives, you know, his, his <laughs> um, called memory, where everything has to be structured, uh, stowed, and, and <clears throat> su- surveyed, it's not necessary. You know, all this is not necessary. Um, it ha- all happens by itself, and uh, we don't we don't lose anything if we give up uh, the the false what I call the false memory, uh, which is uh, an accumulation of uh, knowledge of the past gathered through experiences. Interesting, because, uh, I mean, the way I was hearing uh, what you've just said um, is to relate it to uh, what I mentioned earlier that my teacher used to say about this this capacity um, that is senior to um, the thinking mind. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, well, well, excuse me, senior means like above or above or yeah, above higher, or higher, prior yes, or prior yes. or prior to really. Yes, yes. So, um, so prior to is probably the best, the best, uh, mm-hmm. uh, formulation, but, but, um, you know, when, when I understood that, that, that there was a problematization of the thinking mind, which was, New, which was a new concept to me. I got involved quite a few years ago, of course, uh, in, in spiritual practice. And, and that was a new idea to me. And I feared that losing the thinking mind would, would mean that I had lost capacity to act intelligently based on the entirety of, of, uh, of my life. But of course, I found just the opposite, because the thinking mind is actually slower than the capacity of that which is senior to it to respond, not just more in the moment, but also more intelligently and more holistically. Does that resonate at all with the formulation that you're um, uh, putting forward? Yes, it does. And I mean, what you're pointing to is, is that the general notion of intelligence, uh, that is, that, that everyone believes in, you know, the, the notion of intelligence that, that came from the age of enlightenment mm-hmm. is, uh, an intelligence that is linked to the rational consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody who is, uh, who has reached this level and is, 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 is identified uh, with this level, uh, thinks that there is something beyond it. Um, the whole, our, our, um, society is, uh, society worshiping, uh, completely worshiping, uh, science. And uh, the scientific mind is also a concept from this level of, of, of consciousness. So there is an intelligence beyond rational intelligence. 
and this is a transpersonal uh, intelligence and it is a silent intelligence it is not an intelligence that is that is created in the human brain uh, the human brain is just mm, transforming uh, mm. you know uh, translating translating uh, an intelligence that is already uh, present uh, invisibly for for people but it's not I wouldn't even say it's human it's transhuman uh, but the human form is the only form on earth that, that has the capacity to to, to translate this hmm. so when you speak about the fourth brain is the fourth brain a vehicle by which this intelligence can uh, be translated into a human life? Yeah, well, the fourth brain, you see, is, is the, the transhuman brain, uh, which uh, emanates when, when the three human brains, uh, when the, there has been a process of elevation of consciousness through the three human brains. So that means that these three human brains that constitute a human being and also mm -hmm. the human, the humanness of this being, when these uh, brains <clears throat> have uh, reached uh, a natural balanced state and uh, the process of elevation takes place beyond the identification of physical, emotional, or mental mind, then, then the fourth brain is, is uh, the actual state of transpersonal intelligence that, uh, that is available to a human being. So that, that uh, intelligence is, a, is the product of the harmonization of the f first three brains and the the when the mind and the heart and the body are operating in integrity and in unity, then the fourth brain is functioning. Is that then 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 there is the capacity that that consciousness um, elevates. I can say because balance only means you know balance a balanced state means that there is a harmony that there is no more fixation. In this in this state, I mean, in the in the teachings of the Enneagram, we use the term fixation. Fixation. What is the fixation in the body? It's it's just a different way of saying identification with the body. The mind is identified with the body. It means I am the body, and from this I am the body. Of course, you can imagine that hundreds and thousands of phenomena and can can emerge and 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 disharmonies of many kinds you know it's all in the in the presence of this person my my health my strength my something it's all the, the, the it's absorbed and it's all a fight against death physical mm. death you know on the next mm. level mm. on the next level the fight against emotional death starts and on the third on the mental level the fight against mental death happens so all these are imbalances or fixations and the whole system is not in balance 
um, is not in its natural dynamic balance. And then the fourth brain, the state of the fourth brain can only happen through the integration and the balanced integration of, of these of these levels. Sometimes it can happen, you know, that there is like a quantum leap in this state of beyond awareness. And then it can happen that what I just said, that these other levels, they have to come afterwards, you know, that the harmonization of the lower levels has to happen afterwards. This is also possible. Hmm. This is, that, that. thank you. That's a very interesting formulation. I really um, am appreciating this idea that you just articulated about the, the, the fear of death at the different, at, at the different levels or different mm. aspects. Um, because I hadn't really made that differentiation for myself as clearly as you just articulated it. But I think there's a lot, uh, you know, in my experience of, you know, one of, one of the practices that, that we do is, is being with people whose physical body is, is dying. If, you know, if we have some reason to do that and, and, and to maintain a kind of integrity of presence during that process, because for many people, of course, it triggers, um, it triggers the, the fears that you're talking about. But I, and I hadn't made the distinction between the different, these different types of fear. I think that's, that's a very helpful, um, formulation. Mm. Uh, to to realize that that um, sometimes it might be emotional, sometimes it's physical, and sometimes it's mental or intellectual, as you as you said. And, and well, yeah, we're living more and more. You know, this age of the, the digital age, and I don't know whether you've seen this small book which I wrote about the digital age. Yes, I mean we're living in a more and more mental age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, I, I mentioned before, you know, these transhumanists mm-hmm. and uh, this whole anti-aging movement, yes. uh, you know, uh, who have the idea to overcome uh, physical death and they just don't realize that this is just uh, the next search for is it the next escape on the mental level. So the, the, the fear of death has has reached much more has reached much more mental level nowadays in the in this in our age mm-hmm. and causes a lot of mental overactivity you see which is compensation finally for simply for the fear of death so the mind the mental mind doesn't want to die and the mental mind has a project of of in uh in uh, what you say, in unsterblichkeit, immortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this, the, the thinking mind has an immortality project. Ah, right. <laughs> That's right. You know. Yes, indeed. And and it's partly bizarre what 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 uh, these uh, transhumanists uh, think how they could overcome uh, death. Um. So this physical, you know, the fight for physical survival is, is not so much in the <clears throat> in the presence of 
of the the, the daily routine. It has the, the 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 fighting for survival has reached much more uh, a mental level. Yeah. So it's about the, the mind wants ideas to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, the mind wants ideas to survive and creates ideologies, and they should survive uh, the 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 physical decay. Yeah. Well. We are, we have come to the end of our allotted time, uh, Good. and we're Good. just we're just getting uh, going here. But um, mm. <laughs> um, is it is it is it so long that we're talking already? My God! Yeah, yeah it, it, it goes quickly. But but the um, I understand that you'll be coming to the U.S. next year. Is that is that a uh, plan or a uh, intention or at least possibility well the, the plan is quite clear to, that in October of next year I will, I'm going to come for okay. the first time for the first time since 19 when I lived in the States uh, from 1993 to 1994 or five and now I'm coming back for the first time oh good well mm-hmm. we certainly uh, hope we'll have a chance to uh, host you when you're uh, if you come to the um uh, California side of the country. Yes. What, where are you? Next to San Francisco? Yeah. About, yes. About what would it be? Uh, uh, 80, 80 kilometers, 80 kilometers north. north of San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we'll look Good. forward to that very much. And yep. um, yes. and thank you so much for uh, joining us today on the Mystical Positivist uh, show and and this conversation. Uh, I've certainly gotten some uh, some useful material from it, and I really appreciate the time you've taken, and uh, um, we'll look forward to getting to know you better in the future. Yes, thank you very much, thank and you. I will be in touch with you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we have been speaking with spiritual teacher Om C. Parkin. Om C. Parkin's spiritual teaching is referred to as Inner Silence and is based on the Eastern Advaita Vedanta tradition. Om is the author of a variety of books and writings and articles, including the recent English publications of The Digital Age, The Birth of the Lion, Non-Duality as a Way of Life, and Intelligence of Awakening, Navigating the Spiritual Path. He founded the first major German-speaking mystery school of the present time in the 1990s, since 2010, the school is located at Gut Zaunstorf, a splendidly restored historic manor house near the Hasiatic city of Wismar that has been known as the Ort der Stille, the place of stillness. As a modern monastery, it is also open as a retreat for people who are on the inner path. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we present an in-studio conversation with Rick Lewis, comedian, entertainer, and author of Confident Under Pressure, and other books. Tune in for that show on Saturday, December 6th at 4 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, to follow your bliss, first follow your dread. That's a meeting with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff Wednesday evening at 7.30 p.m. December 4th at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Joseph Campbell famously advised, follow your bliss, inspirational advice, but offered with no clear operating instructions, no means to accomplish the goal. Follow your dread is the starting direction that points towards a realistic route to bliss. 
The difficulty of the undertaking demands help. The Follow Your Dread group meeting offers substantial practices for self-inquiry and an ongoing forum for practical mutual assistance. Only with such tools can we hope to comprehend what we fear and make Follow Your Dread more than just another slogan. Join the endeavor if you dare. And then, on the Thursdays at Many Rivers event series in Sebastopol, The Secret Stream, From Anthroposophy to Hermeticism, that's with Eloguen O'Malion. That's Thursday, December 5th, 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Since Rudolf Steiner, the occult has moved from the fringes of culture into the mainstream of the 21st century. We now see esotericism playing a major role in the discussion of religion and spirituality and their impact on the mysticism of our daily lives. As even the universities are now openly studying and teaching what was once hidden due to heresy, we have the chance to fully engage with the entire corpus of the Western mystery tradition in ways that are able to transform the way we live our lives and engage mystically with our true selves. Eleguen Amalion, Master of Divinity, attended the Vancouver Waldorf School for 13 years before earning his Master's of Divinity from UBC's Vancouver School of Theology in 2006 following seven years of order training in the Golden Dawn. Some of his books include The Celtic Mysteries of W.B. Yeats, Irish Gods, Myths, and the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, The Ethics of Understanding God, Hermetic Spirituality, and Initiate Magic. And then on Friday, Mini Rivers hosts a special event, Confident Under Pressure, Discover the Hidden Advantages of Stress. This is with Rick Lewis, comedian, entertainer, and author of Confident Under Pressure and other books. That's Friday, December 6th at 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Stress is directly linked to six of the leading causes of death in the U.S. today, and it seems obvious that environmental, economic, and social stresses are not going away. In fact, they're predicted to get worse. For this reason, the vast majority of stressless books are concerned with the modern problem of too much stress and how to reduce it. Not this one. Confident Under Pressure is about the advantages of stress, clarifying the critical role that intentionally engaged stress plays in personal and professional development. Author Rick Lewis makes his living by putting leaders, executives, and organizational teams into challenging situations to help them see the habitual ways they respond to stress. He then offers unique guidance in the practice of stress production rather than stress reduction, revealing how to make a dynamic turnaround, an attitude of yes to stress. Confident Under Pressure weaves colorful personal stories, recent neuroscience, the research of human performance experts, and the inspiration of leading business executives into a compelling and lucid argument for moving toward stress, conflict, and change in order to become more creative, effective, and happy in life on the way to making our highest contribution to the world. The result is an eminently readable and practical book that anyone can use at home, on the job, and in one-on-one relationships. Motivational speaker, thought leader, author, comedian, and entertainer, Rick Lewis is a speaker, author, and entertainer par excellence who delivers a world-class presentation for meetings and events of of all kinds. In the world of meetings, where attendees have seen it all, Rick is the ace in your meeting hand, a fresh, surprising, and delightful experience they never saw coming. 
Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.